Hamas continues to retain significant military capacity, but after several months of fighting, Israel has made a dent in it. But how big is that dent, and at what cost? We look at 100 days of war between Israel and Hamas for Sunday, January 14th. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Andrew Limbong. We'll examine some of Israel's military maneuvers in Gaza. Also, it's easy to get despondent over climate change stats, but one data scientist sees a glimmer of hope in the numbers. We are starting to get on a bit of a better trajectory, and we have done that because we have started to take action. I think the key is that we accelerate that action. And it's been 25 years since Jon Stewart revolutionized the news. When he started hosting in 1999, the concept of infotainment was relatively young. Now it is so baked into the cake because of people like Jon Stewart. First headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Congressional leaders have agreed on another short-term spending bill to give themselves more time to work out a way to fund the government. NPR's Mara Eliasson has more. House and Senate leaders have decided to kick the can down the road again this time until early March, so that House Speaker Mike Johnson can figure out a way to get the votes to avoid a government shutdown. So far, he's been unable to convince enough Republicans to vote for any deal to keep the government open. Johnson is in the same bind that former Speaker Kevin McCarthy faced. If he passes a funding bill with Democratic votes, he could be ousted, just as McCarthy was, by the hard-right faction in the House. But if there's a government shutdown and Republicans are blamed, Johnson could endanger the Republican majority, especially the 18 Republicans who represent districts that President Biden won in 2020. Democrats only need five net pickups in November to regain the House majority. Mara Eliasson, NPR News. Pentagon spokesman Major General Patrick Ryder says Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is still hospitalized at a military hospital in Maryland after surgery following a prostate cancer diagnosis and that he's in good condition. It's not clear, though, when he will be released. Austin didn't tell most of his staff and didn't tell President Biden for days that he was in Walter Reed Medical Center. Biden says Austin had a lapse in judgment, but that he won't fire him. White House National Security Spokesperson John Kirby. He's following his doctor's orders and in consultation with their views in terms of what kind of additional care he needs. Um, and we'll, we'll see you know, when he can get released. But obviously, they still feel like he, he may need some additional care. I understand uh, that uh, part of that is just physical therapy. Speaking there on CBS's Face the Nation, Kirby says some of the military strikes carried out by the U.S. on Christmas Day were pre-approved. But he says Austin is actively engaged. The U.S. is dealing with severe winter weather coast to coast. In New York, heavy snow is pummeling parts of the state, leading to dangerous whiteout conditions with near zero visibility. Ava Pukach of member station WRVO reports a travel ban remains in place. The travel ban affects most of Erie County where Buffalo is. All commercial vehicles are banned on the New York State Thruway from the Rochester area in the north all the way down to the Pennsylvania state line. The heavy lake effect snow is predicted to fall at a rate of 2 to 3 inches an hour, leading to totals possibly topping 2 feet in parts of the state and the potential for thunder snow. Governor Kathy Hochul has declared a state of emergency for multiple counties. She says the storm continues to pose a life and safety risk and asks New Yorkers to take precautions. For NPR News, I'm Eva Pukach in Syracuse, New York. Wall Street is closed tomorrow in observance of Martin Luther King Jr. Day. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. Well, there is the possibility of snow squalls through early this evening as a cold front pushes through the area. National Weather Service meteorologist Alan Dunham said squalls can create hazardous roads. You'll end up with a, a coating accumulation on snow, so your roads can start off perfectly fine. Snow squalls come through and uh, they can turn real slick on you. So if you're out about this afternoon or this evening and you run into one of these, make sure you slow down. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says the city is following through on its strategy to address high crime areas of the city. Wu tells WCVB's On the Record that her administration is relying on the community to help reduce crime. We have a set of committees that meets now on a regular basis that brings together not just our police officers and the incredible training they bring, but also on the ground outreach providers. Earlier today, Suffolk County District Attorney Kevin Hayden credited police and the community for a record low number of homicides last year. 37 murders were recorded in Boston in 2023. Three people were killed this afternoon in a small plane crash in northwestern Massachusetts. The FAA said the twin-engine aircraft went down in a wooded area near the town line between Greenfield and Layton. No other information was immediately available. And again, a chance of uh, some snow squalls into early this evening with temperatures in the 30s. Snow showers overnight with a low in the 20s. Sunny skies tomorrow, low 30s, and then snow likely by Tuesday afternoon. The exact track of that storm is still to be determined, but at least a couple of inches is possible on Tuesday. Tuesday's temps will only be in the low 30s. And then uh, looking way ahead to Wednesday, sunny skies, but still chilly 30s. Right now in Boston, 35 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cigna Healthcare, a health benefits provider that advocates for better health through every stage of life. Learn more at Cigna.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. Today is the last full day of campaigning for Republicans ahead of tomorrow's Iowa caucuses. And for months, the presidential race has seemed frozen at the top, with Donald Trump the far and away frontrunner. It also happens to be freezing in Iowa, which is where we find Clay Masters, who's covered a number of caucuses and is now with Minnesota Public Radio. Hey, Clay. Hey. All right, so uh, how's the weather there? Well, Iowa is finally out of the blizzard warning that's gripped pretty much the entire state the last couple of days, but now it's the bitter cold wind chills that are going to be an issue. Hmm. You know, I grew up in the Midwest where it gets pretty cold, but this is a, a dangerous level of cold. It really hits you when you walk outside and feel wind chills in the double digits below zero. I mean, it can literally take your breath away. Yeah. On caucus night, it's forecasted to be close to 30 degrees below zero. That would be the coldest caucus night on record. And we've already seen Trump cancel all but one of his in-person rallies here this weekend. Do we have any idea how this extreme weather will impact turnout? Well, I'm pretty sure it will. I just don't think we know for sure who it benefits. You know, maybe Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has visited all 
99 of Iowa's counties while campaigning. Maybe former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, who has kind of stepped up her campaigning in the state. Uh, Trump brought in a lot of first-time Iowa caucus goers eight years ago, Andrew, and there's a, a lot of first-timers expected to show up for him tomorrow. But with him dominating the polls throughout the seemingly never-ending caucus cycle throughout 2023, there could be a lot of people who think it's, you know, in the bag and saying, well, you know, I don't need to show up. Why leave my warm house? And remember, the caucuses are not primary elections. You have to be at your precinct at 7 p.m. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis battling out for second place, you know, if the polls are to be believed. Are there, you know, that many Iowans left still trying to make up their minds? Well, this is the third caucus cycle I've covered. And yet yeah, th this weekend before the caucuses four years ago, when the Democrats were barnstorming the state, I talked to people who had it down to a short list and they do exist this time around, too. I was at the headquarters for the Never Back Down Pack that supports DeSantis. And while the place was packed with members of the national press and, you know, volunteers for the Super PAC, I did manage to find a couple people who told me they're, you know, still trying to make up their minds. This is Paul Waddell, who says he thinks Trump has it locked up, but he's still stumped on who he'll support. I've been kind of leaning towards Nikki Haley a lot of the times, too, or DeSantis, but I mean, I kind of go back and forth. I wasn't really happy with the debate the other night, the way they, they went about that. Um, it's just like attack mode immediately. So Paul says ultimately it'll come down to who he thinks can do the best job handling immigration at the southern U.S. border. I'm at a Nikki Haley campaign event right now in Ames, mm -hmm. Iowa, at a barbecue joint and talked to Susie Richardson. I don't have tape of her, but she was saying she was still trying to figure out who she's going to support. And even after seeing Nikki Haley, she said, yeah, she made a compelling argument. Yeah. All right. Well, Clay, this is the third Iowa caucus cycle you've covered. What sets this one apart from others? Andrew, the, the term unprecedented is overused, but I, I can't think of another term to use. You know, you have a former president running again. Not only that, one that denies the results of his 2020 loss. He has 91 criminal indictments and he's the front runner. You know, the race started out crowded and we thought maybe as people would drop out, there would be a strong tr Trump alternative. We've seen DeSantis and Haley emerge as the two dominant Trump alternative candidates. But this poll out yesterday from the Des Moines Register and NBC News, which is kind of the gold standard poll here in Iowa still shows Trump nearly 30 points ahead of those two. That's Clay Masters, now of Minnesota Public Radio, reporting from Ames, Iowa. Thanks, Clay. Stay warm. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. We're going to look now at what Israel says its military has done towards its stated goal of destroying Hamas. It's been 100 days since Hamas attacked Israel, killing about 1,200 people and kidnapping more than 200 others. Israel's response since October 7th, an air, sea, and ground offensive that has killed thousands of Palestinians. The United Nations says nearly 2 million people have been displaced. Israel says it's on the way to eliminating Hamas. NPR's Kerry Khan examines that claim. To prove their claims, Israel's military often points to its biggest trophies in the war after more than three months of fighting. Hamas's notorious tunnel network. This is why we're fighting. Major Daron Spielman, with about a dozen journalists in tow, heads to Israel's biggest tunnel discovery to date. Passing through a section of the concrete border barrier blown out by Hamas fighters on October 7th, we move on to Gaza's sandy soil. Drones buzz overhead. Right now we're in Gaza and we're heading into an opening. We're looking into a shaft that looks like a subway single subway tunnel. After going about 100 feet down what looks like a rusty drainage pipe, the huge concrete tunnel opens up. 
Wiring and ventilation run its length, snaking past two armed soldiers and disappearing into the dark. So the tunnel itself is two and a half miles, 2.4 miles long. There are along this tunnel shafts that are going down with ladders to underground command centers, 170 feet into the earth where they're storing weapons, going through maps and planning their attacks. Spielman says hundreds of miles of tunnels run under all of Gaza. Cars drove through this one, he says, to and from Gaza City. Ladies and gentlemen, it is time for your group to exit the tunnel, please. Under strict military control, we emerge back on the surface and in the distance can see blown out buildings amidst huge plumes of smoke rising above nearby Gaza City. These tunnels are best seen and dismantled and cleaned out from terrorists by people on the ground. But you know the death toll in Gaza. It's over 20,000 and that's just what they can count. Is this really the only way to prosecute the war? We would love to have uh, a better way. And I know we don't want to kill civilians and they're very unfortunate consequence of Hamas having spent so many years building underneath their feet. If anyone has a better idea, I think we would love to hear it. That logic makes no sense to 30-year-old Palestinian Mohammed Hamdan. He's cleaning up rubble after a recent Israeli airstrike leveled his neighbor's home, killing the family. He asks why destroy everything above ground. Go underground and fight Hamas, he says. We are not Hamas. They are not dying. The people are. According to Gaza's health ministry, the death toll has now topped 23,000, with more than 60,000 injured. Israel's leaders push on, though, insisting a military victory can be achieved, something military experts question. Daniel Byman at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington says Israel's military is winning, but with many caveats. Israel has destroyed a lot of tunnels, but it has also seen how vast Hamas's underground network grew over the years. Bayman is also cautious about Israel's claims to have killed many top commanders and as many as 8,000 Hamas fighters. Hamas continues to retain you know, the majority of its fighters. It continues to retain significant military capacity, but after several months of fighting, Israel has made a dent in it. He says the definition of a fighter is debatable too. Young, angry men in a neighborhood picking up a gun is much different than a trained militant. And with some Hamas troop estimates as high as 40,000, 80% of the force could still be on the ground. Samir Gattas is a Gaza expert based in Cairo. We can say that statements from both sides have been exaggerated, he says. Israel's military control over northern Gaza was quick, and rocket fire from Gaza has slowed dramatically, he adds. But Gattas, who runs the Middle East Forum for Strategic Studies and National Security in Egypt, says while Hamas's weapon stockpiles have been reduced, they remain significant. With military capability to fight for one or two months well into February, he adds. This indicates that the outlook will be tougher for Israel's military and more destructive for Gazans, as the battleground has shifted to cities teeming with displaced Palestinians ordered to move by Israel. 
Aron Bregman, who teaches at the War Studies Department at King's College London, says Hamas will just embed deeper into that population, breaking into smaller insurgent groups harder for Israel to find. They are better trained, the Israelis, in fighting regular armies than fighting insurgency. And they will find it very difficult, the Israelis, if they do stay in the Gaza Strip, to do counterinsurgency. The problem is that there's 2.2 million civilians in the Gaza Strip. James Rands is a military analyst with the defense intelligence company Jane's. You can't just keep moving them around indefinitely. So that final blow against Hamas to actually destroy them probably isn't going to be feasible. He says the way to end an insurgency is to offer people hope for a better future. Rand says most of Hamas's fighting force remains, and there are still plenty of tunnels left, too, he says, for militants to hide and regroup. Many Israelis fighting the war agree, like 37-year-old Omri Erental in a Jerusalem hospital after being shot early this month searching a tunnel. At least 185 Israeli soldiers have been killed so far in Gaza. A group of rabbis bless Erental while making rounds through the hospital. Omri Nisim. A Hamas fighter shot Erental at the tunnel's entrance he had discovered in an open orange grove. My luck, I fell backwards and not forwards, not into the tunnel. The bullet went through his cheek, broke his jaw, exited and lodged in his shoulder. He says he won't stop until Hamas is totally defeated. They surprised us in October 7th, but uh, we'll rise and we'll win. And if winning means eliminating Hamas, experts say the fight will continue to be destructive and deadly. The Israeli military has said it will keep troops in Gaza through 2024. Carrie Khan, NPR News, Jerusalem. to All Things Considered from NPR News. And you're also listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks for being with us. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Girl from the North Country, playing in Boston this March. Written and directed by Connor McPherson, this new musical reimagines the songs of Bob Dylan, including Forever Young, Slow Train Coming, Like a Rolling Stone, and Make You Feel My Love. More at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. Tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR, global reaction to the escalation of fighting in the Red Sea, plus why young caucus goers in Iowa will have an outsized impact on the results. Start your week here. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Maplewood Country Day Camp. Family run for 60 years with children's programs designed to teach life skills, putting the fun in fundamentals. MaplewoodYearRound.com. Right now in Boston, it is 35 degrees, and be on the lookout for snow squalls. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. A principal in Iowa who put himself in harm's way to shield children from a gunman earlier this month has died from his injuries. An 11-year-old boy was also killed in the attack at Perry High School in Iowa, which was carried out by a 17-year-old student at the school. There's still no word on a motive.
The World Health Organization is sending more than a million cholera vaccine doses to Zambia, where an outbreak has claimed more than 350 people, with more than 9,000 cases being reported. And Denmark has a new monarch. King Frederick X ascended the throne today after his mother, Queen Margareta, abdicated. Massive crowds turned out for the event. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance. Progressive is looking for dedicated and forward-thinking individuals to join their growing team. More information, including application, at Progressive.com careers. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at WallaceFoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Andrew Limbong. A woman and two children drowned in the Rio Grande on Friday night as they were attempting to cross the U.S. southern border. Border protection officials say the state of Texas blocked them from conducting a rescue operation. The incident has renewed the Biden administration's condemnation of Governor Greg Abbott's border security initiatives. From San Antonio, Texas Public Radio's Dan Katz reports. Arresting migrants who cross illegally and providing humanitarian relief is the job of the U.S. Border Patrol. But last Wednesday, Governor Greg Abbott seized that authority when he took control of a public park in Eagle Pass, a heavily crossed section of the Rio Grande. That is not a decision that we agreed to. This is not something that we asked for as a city. That's Eagle Pass Mayor Rolando Salinas. The city is at the center of Abbott's controversial Operation Lone Star Border Security Program, which uses Texas Department of Public Safety troopers and Texas National Guard soldiers to deter migration. Resident America Garcia Graywall says she was shocked when she found National Guard Humvees blocking the entrances to the park and its main gate completely shuttered. In the entire time that I have lived here, I have never seen it shut. City officials say they were told the state was taking control to stop undocumented migrants from crossing into the city. Eagle Pass experienced a rise in migration at the end of the year, but that has since subsided considerably. Nonetheless, Abbott said in an interview with right-wing talk show host Dana Lash that the state is doing everything it can to stop people from crossing. The only thing that we're, we're not doing is we're not uh, uh, shooting people who come across the border uh, because, of course, the Biden administration would charge us with murder. His rhetoric has gotten bloodthirsty and chilly. That's Congressman Joaquin Castro, a San Antonio Democrat. Intentionally keeping people from saving a drowning mother with her kids. Uh, that's bloodthirsty. You know, that's Lord of the Flies stuff. On Friday, the Justice Department asked the Supreme Court to intervene to allow Border Patrol to regain access to the area. Hours later, Border Patrol agents nearby learned that a group of migrants were in distress. After unsuccessful phone calls to Texas officials, they drove over to Shelby Park, according to Congressman Henry Cuellar, a Laredo Democrat. The Texas military said that they could not grant access even in emergency situations. The agency that oversees the state's National Guard says it performed its own search and observed no migrants, but did not expressly deny that it blocked Border Patrol from entering the area. The bodies of the women and two children were later recovered by Mexican authorities. The White House said it's still gathering facts about the tragic deaths, but it should not have been Abbott's agents conducting the search or blocking federal access. Congressman Castro is among Texas Democrats urging the president to take action. 
I think that at this point, the president has no choice but to consider federalizing the Texas National Guard. For now, the state of Texas continues to block access to this two-and-a-half-mile stretch of border to everyone, including the Border Patrol. For NPR News, I'm Dan Katz in San Antonio. You might have forgotten, but Jon Stewart wasn't always host of The Daily Show. Welcome! Welcome, welcome to The Daily Show. Craig Kilborn is on assignment in Kuala Lumpur. I'm Jon Stewart. 25 years ago this month, Stewart, who was then known as a stand-up comedian, took over Comedy Central's satirical news program, replacing host Craig Kilborn. You're out of order. He's out of order. This whole trial is sexy. In those early episodes, Stewart looks so young and kind of smug, right? Like the comedian who totally gets the joke, but is going to let you in on it too. And he was about to crash into the intersection of politics and comedy in a way that would change the landscape of late-night comedy TV. I remember early on a meeting in the executive producer's office, and this was months after he had started as the host, and he was clearly grappling with what he wanted the show to be, and he explained that he wanted the show to have more of a point of view. That's Mo Rocca. He's a correspondent for CBS Sunday Morning and creator and host of the Mobituaries podcast. He started working on The Daily Show in 1998 and was there until 2003. I remember distinctly meeting the eyes of one of the producers, and I think other people were looking at each other this way and thinking, uh-oh, is this going to make the show unfunny? Obviously, we were proven wrong. The show became much more successful. But I remember that there, there was definitely concern like, uh-oh, what, what's this show going to become? It's time for a hastily thrown together editorial. I'm sure many of you are curious. Is my beloved Daily Show going to change? Well, it might, subtly. And I know change can be painful, but from change comes growth. When Jon Stewart took over the show, I think what surprised people was that he had a focus. He knew what he wanted to say about media and about politics. Eric Deggins is NPR's media critic and analyst. Jon Stewart comes along and he decides that he's going to be very incisive and he's going to talk about what's actually happening. He's going to satirize media from the inside out. He's going to target hypocrisies by politicians. And when they come on to do interviews on his show, sometimes he's going to confront them in ways that might make them uncomfortable, that might make the audience uncomfortable. Making politicians uncomfortable was not something that had really been done in the late-night comedy show format, which was you know, usually focused on jokey interviews with celebrities. One of the things he wasn't worried about was looking partisan, which is something that I think uh, held back people like Johnny Carson and Jay Leno, who didn't want to offend more conservative audience members. I was not elected to serve one party. You were not elected. <laughs> so that's how... John Stewart changed the game in terms of late night. With Stewart at the helm, The Daily Show created an infotainment hybrid, comedy and pointed political commentary that was new to late night TV. When comedy and politics mixed, a comedian became a trusted source for news. So what's happened since those lines got blurred? 
Matt Brennan is deputy editor of entertainment and arts for the Los Angeles Times and has written about the cultural impact of The Daily Show. I spoke with him about the limits of infotainment and what he has called Stewart's complicated legacy. Stewart took the sort of style of sitting at the desk, and which had already existed, and he focused it on politics and the news and the media in a way that hadn't been done before, and then spawned so many imitators that I think it now qualifies as a subgenre. Um, folks like Stephen Colbert, John Oliver, Samantha Bee, all of whom came up under Stewart, then launched their own shows with a similar kind of style, but their own bent on it. And now that kind of new satire is a familiar part of American culture in a way that it was not in 1999. Hmm. Yeah, um, can I, I want to bring it over to closer to today where, you know, there's been some data out of the Pew Research Center showing that more and more news consumption is happening on social media, right? On YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, etc. Um, and I've noticed that you can see a lot of what looks to me like the Daily Show's DNA in that ecosystem, you know, even stuff on the political right, like like Ben Shapiro's monologues on the Daily Wire, right? Or like what Steven Crowder does on YouTube or Rumble. And it's a lot of like consuming news by way of dunking on news, right? <laughs> and, I, and I'm wondering, is that fair to trace back to Jon Stewart? Yes, absolutely. I think um, especially as The Daily Show under his leadership evolved, Stewart became at times a very perceptive and often a very effusive critic of the American news media and not just what we would describe as sort of right-wing or right-leaning news outlets like Fox News, even though he was a ferocious critic of Bill O'Reilly. Um, he also was a critic of shows like Crossfire on CNN um, and really any kind of political news media that either failed to cover the facts of the news appropriately or made sort of ridiculous claims about uh, bias or things that people weren't covering. Um, but interestingly, he, unlike some of these folks who are starting to kind of claim themselves as news outlets or sources of information, he famously disavowed the label of journalist. He preferred to be understood as a comedian um, the the quote that he used was, I want to sit in the back of the country and make wisecracks. Um, I don't think he quite understood how powerful he was becoming as a source of information, particularly for Gen X and millennial uh, consumers who were not and continue not to be <laughs> viewers of things like the nightly news pro programs on the broadcast networks. But by the time his show ended, I think it would be inaccurate not to refer to The Daily Show as a form of news for many of the people watching it, because that is the place where they were getting their news of the day in addition to the internet. And I think sort of by the end of his tenure, Stuart, I think it felt to me as though there was a level of discomfort with having to walk that line because as you and I know there's a different set of actual ethical standards that you have to follow as a journalist at a traditional news outlet 
versus folks who don't abide by those rules. And that does put limitations in place on what you can and cannot say. Um, and I think Stewart kind of almost ran into the buzzsaw of his own success in handling the news. Well, the, the issue is that it's a deflection, right? He, what he's saying is like, oh, I'm just some guy. When it's, you know, pretty clear that he wasn't just some guy. Yeah, he was he was never just some guy because he had this platform. I think one thing that has sort of developed in the cultural discourse since his hosting of the show began is this idea that when you have a platform, that platform is powerful, whether you define it as news or you define it as entertainment. Um, I think when The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, when he started hosting in 1999, the concept of infotainment was relatively young mm -hmm. and now it is so baked into the cake because of people like Jon Stewart that we don't even use the word anymore. Is there anything that sort of occupies the space that uh, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart did back in its prime? I mean, I know The Daily Show is still around, but I feel like it's, you know, cultural weight has sort of waned over the years. So is, is there anything that like lives up to, to the Jon Stewart years? You know, The Daily Show, when it was airing in the early 2000s, its ratings would not have been enough to keep it on the air if it had aired on CBS in addition to all the sort of like standards and practices reasons it wouldn't have aired on CBS. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you took those ratings and ported them to 2023, people would be clamoring to have that show on their network because you could concentrate people in one place for half an hour a day in a way that you really can't now. Yeah. You know, you wrote about Jon Stewart back when he stepped down from The Daily Show in 2015. Um, and in that piece, you outlined some of the same criticisms that, you know, we brought up here. But in the last line of the piece, um, you, you say, whatever his shortcomings, we loved him back. Um, and I, I just want to kind of pinpoint, what was it about his show that you loved? For me, what I loved was his level of sincere engagement in the issues of the day. Whatever criticisms I might have had of his stance on, you know, I'm not a member of the media, I'm a comedian, or my criticisms of his interviewing, which was mostly dreadful. Ultimately, his show was driven by a sense that what was happening in the United States and the world mattered, that it was important for viewers, especially younger viewers, to know what was happening and that it was appropriate for people to then have opinions about the things that were happening in the world around them and that he could sort of help guide them through it. And that's why I started and ended that piece with talking about his uh, post 9-11 monologue, which I think was the most kind of emotional example of that feeling that he gave us, which was of not a detached, neutral quote-unquote objective anchor, but of a fellow citizen in our society who happened to have the platform to, to tell it how it is, as the saying goes. Mm -hmm. And for that, I will always be a fan of Jon Stewart, whatever my complaints. Matt Brandon of the Los Angeles Times, thanks a lot. Thanks so much for having me. This is NPR News.
For the past few months, whenever I've opened up TikTok, I've been bombarded by ads. We're doing our winter clearance sale. This light is the first thing I've bought off TikTok shops. I don't even want to say I was influenced to buy it. I feel like I was pressured. Hello, girl math here. Shop smarter. Okay, treat yourself. The TikTok shop e-commerce marketplace launched in the U.S. in September. The app is positioning itself to compete with retail giants like Amazon. And with its viral content and huge user base, it might shake up the competition. NPR's Emma Klein has the story. In many ways, the TikTok app is perfectly constructed to sell things. Hurry up, purchase now. Super cute, you guys. I love it. TikTok shop ads are integrated into the entertainment environment. It's estimated that the app has around 80 million active users every month in the U.S., and the average user spends somewhere around 65 to 90 minutes on the app every day. According to the company, over 5 million new users made a purchase on TikTok Shop during the holiday shopping season last year. E-commerce strategist Aurelis Cabin-Oberst says the power of TikTok is something competitors can't ignore. Amazon is going to have a competitor like they've never seen before. With the introduction of TikTok Shop, there's been a sort of gold rush for creators to make a lot of money pushing products. Everyone is an advertiser now. That's Devin Rule, a creator and retail expert who makes a lot of content about conscious shopping. You can definitely see how hard they are pushing for creators to start using TikTok shop from an affiliate point of view. She worries that the push from the company to turn creators into sellers and advertisers creates some ethical concerns. If you become an advertiser, there's a certain level of responsibility that comes with that. You know, what are you doing by putting your face and likeness promoting that product? Maya McCormick is a 19-year-old TikTok creator and student. She's seen firsthand how popular it's becoming to promote products on the platform. I have a friend who actually started doing TikTok shop. She posts maybe three seconds of the product and gets 100,000 views in like an hour. The implications of influencer advertising and the ease with which users can make purchases raises some concerns for media researcher Jenny Radeski. It gets around some of our cognitive defenses to advertising. You have an advertising message coupled with something that's very pleasurable, rewarding, satisfying, fun. And so it's activating this emotional part of your response to an advertising message. As the app has faced increased scrutiny in Washington due to it being owned by a Chinese company, they've rolled out ad campaigns with success stories from small business owners. E-commerce strategist Aurelis Cabin-Oberst again. We're seeing a lot of small businesses become multi-million dollar revenue generating businesses, which seems to be overnight. Lana Mushamel is a business owner who uses TikTok Shop. Her company sells nail and beauty products. She's been selling on her website and on Amazon for over 10 years, but she says selling on TikTok has been life-changing. I have done about $20,000 more than I have on Amazon in the same exact duration of time. But strict rules for fulfillment have been difficult for many sellers to keep up with. Representatives from TikTok point out that the e-commerce feature is still very new. Sellers do have access to support from the platform and can appeal decisions related to policy violations that they deem unfair. A report published on the information, a site that covers tech, earlier this month said that the company plans to raise seller fees from 2% to 8% by July. It's likely that many bonuses, like free shipping, will also be rolled back. As subsidies fall away, it's a sign that TikTok feels confident it's here to stay in the e-commerce market. From NPR News, I'm Emma Klein. This is NPR News. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Stay with us. The New Yorker Radio Hour is next at 6 and a look at the Iowa caucuses. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, presenting Stand Up If You're Here Tonight, a man-seeking audience, a one-man, one-audience show, 264 Huntington Ave, starting January 20th, and Volante Farms in Needham, offering farm-to-table meals to go from their kitchen. See available menus and order online at volantefarms.com. In the forecast, a chance of some snow squalls early into the evening, then snow showers overnight, Temps dropping into the low 20s. Sunshine returns tomorrow, but chilly. Temperatures only in the low 30s. 32 degrees in Boston. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Republican presidential hopefuls are in Iowa today, ahead of the first in the country caucuses that will be held tomorrow. The candidates are hoping people will turn out, even though the forecast is for 10 below zero, which would make it the coldest Iowa caucus night in modern history. A leading figure in the former Soviet Union's underground literary scene has died. Lev Rubinstein was a celebrated poet who later became a critic of Russian President Vladimir Putin. He was 76 years old. And at the weekend box office, Mean Girls took the top spot with an estimated $28 million in ticket sales. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, at rwjf.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. You've heard it here on our air and probably from wherever else you get your news. When it comes to the health of the earth, of the big rock we all live on, it's not looking good, folks. 2023 marked the hottest year on record by a lot. That's according to scientists in the EU. Sea levels are rising so fast that we might see many of California's beaches washed away by the end of the century. And to top it off, a recent study concluded something climate researchers have been saying for a bit now that it's unlikely we'll achieve the target global warming limits as set by the Paris Agreement. Like I said, it's bleak out here. But what if it's not all bad? And what if focusing on the doom and gloom of it all actually does a disservice to the work of keeping this place livable? Hannah Ritchie's new book, Not the End of the World, is an optimist's look at sustainability. She's a data scientist at the University of Oxford and spends a lot of time thinking about what numbers tell us about the world. And she started by telling me what humans are getting right. Over the last few centuries on human metrics, things have actually been going very well. We've seen dramatic declines in extreme poverty rates across the world. We've seen dramatic declines in child mortality 
uh, maternal mortality, life expectancy, education. So although the world is, is still very, very unequal and we've got massive amounts of work to do, many of these trends have been going in the right direction. Now on, on environmental metrics, there's kind of been going in the opposite direction. You know, we've got rising temperatures, we've got plastic pollution. And I think when you look at those trends, they look really, really bad and to some extent they are so bad but I think on many of them we are starting to get on a bit of a better trajectory and we have done that because we have started to take action. I think the key is that we accelerate that action. Can you give me one example of where the line was like trending down and maybe it's now started to plateau a bit? Uh, I think even if you take the example of climate change, now the current trajectory that we're on is not a good one. So we're headed on for a path of between two and a half to three degrees Celsius. Now that's very bad and that's very far from the Paris Agreement targets that we set. But if you consider where we were thinking we were going a decade ago, it was between three and a half to four degrees. So in some sense, by taking action, by putting policies in place, we have started to bend that curve. Now, we've still got a long way to go to try to get below two degrees. But if we can make progress over the last decade, to me, that seems like we can also bend that curve further in the next decade. So I, I also think what's fun about the book is, is you debunk a lot of, I don't know how to put this, like things that we do to make us feel good about ourselves when it comes to climate, right? I think, you know, the bit about like buying food locally, right? You say that that doesn't really help all that much in the big picture. And I'm wondering why not. So, yeah, I think the, the eating local thing is a really common misconception perception. I think when people think about how do I reduce the carbon footprint of my diet, they often go to, well, obviously I should eat local food. Now, uh, that seems intuitive. And the reason is that, you know, we know that transport emits CO2. So if you drive a truck or a plane or a ship, then it's emitting CO2. So you would assume that, you know, the further food has to travel to reach you, obviously, the more emissions and the higher carbon footprint. But I think what's important to note about food is that most of the emissions for food just don't come from transport. Only around 5% of food emissions actually come from the transport component. Now, what really matters is land use change and emissions on the farm. So emissions produced during the farming process. Now, what that means is that what you eat matters much, much more than how far it's traveled to reach you. And and just the biggest foods with the biggest carb footprint tend to be meat and especially beef and lamb. So I think there's often this argument of, you know, my, my beef is really low carbon because it's local. And if you're, you know, importing soy from South America, then it must have a higher carbon footprint. But that's that's incorrect because most of the emissions come from the type of food you're eating rather than how far it's traveled to reach you. Yeah, I want to stick on the beef bit because I think beef shows up in a couple different chapters all over the place in the book. Um, And I'm curious, what about beef, right, compared to, I don't know, like poultry or fish or pork makes it so harmful? Yeah, so I think there's a few things. I think one is, I think it's important to note about meat overall, that it's it provides really, really good nutrition, but it's actually quite an inefficient way of producing food or calories, right? So you, you, you feed an animal and then most of that energy is just used keeping the animal alive and then you might get some meat after, but like the conversion ratio there is really, really poor and it's poorest for the biggest animals, which means that a cow is much less efficient than a chicken, for example. The other big things there is that cows tend to need a lot more land and they also, when it comes to climate change, they emit a greenhouse gas called methane, which is actually much more stronger in the short term than carbon dioxide, which we're more familiar with. So that's often the kind of hindrance of beef is that you have this methane emissions and it uses a lot of land. Yeah. 
You know, I, I was reading your book over the holidays, and, and it got me thinking about like beef and my consumption of beef. And I was like, oh, maybe we should like maybe I should like ease back up on this. But then like my father-in-law showed up with a big prime rib, you know, that I had to, <laughs> I had to make, you know, for for Christmas. And you know, which is all to say that we love our beef here in America, right? And I don't know what can we do to convince people to curb our beef consumption because I think that'll be a, that's a hard sell for a lot of people. I think it is a really hard sell, and I think. I think what's also really important, and I tried to do in the book quite deliberately, was not to give prescriptions of stuff that people should do. Like, I would never tell someone, you should be eating less meat or you should be a vegan, because I think actually people just don't respond well to that. And to some extent, I think that's what often we've gotten wrong in terms of environmental messaging, is that we try to push actions on people and they, they push back from it. I think what's important to note about uh, this is it's not an all or nothing. You can massively cut your footprint by just cutting back a little. So maybe you don't need to eat beef every single day. Maybe you can have it, you know, once once a week. Or even from a climate perspective, switching the type of meat you eat has a big impact. So if you switched from beef to pork or chicken, then that could also make a big difference to your footprint. So I think for many people, you know, just a an all or nothing switch seems really daunting and, and they couldn't do it. But I think just step by step, there is ways of getting there. You know, well, reading the book, I did find myself flipping to the end of each chapter first um, because that's where you lay out often. It's like, here's what you're worrying too much about, right? <laughs> so at the end of like uh, the ocean plastics chapter, right, you say stuff like plastic straws, uh, who cares, right? Plastic bags, uh, you know, it's fine. Landfills, don't worry about it. <laughs> Why do you think it's important to triage our worries about the planet? So I think people often get really overwhelmed with the number of things that they should be doing for the planet. Um, and I think often they get really conflicting information. So you're kind of left paralyzed of like, I'm not actually quite sure what I should do. And you often always go through life kind of feeling quite guilty that you're not doing enough. So I think it's important to to highlight, these are the big things in your life that will make a difference. So focus on these ones. And then if you want to do the smaller ones, that's fine. But I don't think you should stress about it. And I think what's really important is that we don't do the really small things and assume that we're having a big impact. And then we miss out the big stuff. Um, I think we we probably have like a, a finite resources of, of focus and energy we can put into actions. So if we're using that energy on the really small things that don't really matter, then we're never going to make progress on this because we'll miss the really big stuff. Sure. But I guess buying a canvas bag for your grocery trip is a lot easier than, I don't know, like convincing Exxon to stop drilling, right? Like, can you really blame folks for, for trying like the smaller stuff first? No, like I think the, the small stuff is, is valid if you want to do it, but I, I think there's like a big gap between convincing Exxon not to drill for oil. Like, I mean, I mean the big behavioral changes in your life. So for example, the beefing, like the, the impacts of reducing your beef consumption are way, way bigger than the plastic bag. So it's not that I'm saying, you know, you have to focus on how to like completely change the world, but it's about focusing on your individual behavior changes that make the biggest difference. That's Hannah Ritchie. Her new book is Not the End of the World, How We Can Be the First Generation to Build a Sustainable Planet. Hannah Ritchie, thanks so much. Thank you. All right. It's officially awards season. The Golden Globes were last week. The Emmys are airing tomorrow night. The Oscars aren't too far off. And the Grammys are airing in just three weeks on February 4th. Now, the Grammys are promoted as music's biggest night. But like other award franchises, it often leaves out some of our favorite artists and albums. 
So each weekend leading up to the Grammys, we're going to pick one major category and talk about who was nominated and who should have been nominated. To kick us off, NPR music critic Stephen Thompson is here to talk about Best New Artist. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Andrew. Let's start first with uh, so who was nominated and what stands out to you from this uh, crop of nominees. Well, there are eight nominees, uh, Gracie Abrams, Fred Again, Ice Spice, Jelly Roll, Coco Jones, Noah Kahn, Victoria Monet, and The War and Treaty. And so you've got a, a pretty broad field across a bunch of different genres. Fred Again is a big star in electronic dance music. Ice Spice is a rapper who's crossed over into pop. Noah Kahn is, is, is like a singer-songwriter. Victoria Monet and Coco Jones are both big stars in R&B. The War and Treaty is an Americana duo that's been around for a while. So you've got a nice kind of range of pop and R&B, dance music, singer-songwriters to cover a, a broad array that maybe isn't as broad an array as it could have been. Yeah, I, I want to talk about one artist you named. His name is Jelly Roll. I only talk to God when I need a favor And I only pray when I ain't got a prayer He's an interesting guy. He started as a rapper and then transitioned into a sort of like country and rock blend. Um, and he's also been very outspoken about his history with substance abuse and being a drug dealer. Can you tell us a little bit more about him? Well, Jelly Roll's been around for a long time, um, you know, because Jelly Roll put out a, a bunch of albums as a rapper, but he kind of had a big breakthrough within the last year or two, and, and that's kind of what got him to this place. I think what stands out about Jelly Roll is just he comes at country music from a very different perspective from what you typically hear on country radio. I complain all the time about how much country radio is dominated by dudes with two first names singing about <laughs> singing about uh, you know small towns on a, on a Friday night. And what really stands out about Jelly Roll's music is it's coming from a much deeper, darker place. He's wrestling with with demons. He's He's addressing religion. He's kind of examining his place in the world. God, I need a favor. Yeah, man. Yeah, but you didn't need to go at Luke Bryan like that. Come on. We, I, Come on. <laughs> I will always go at Luke Bryan. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> All right, so there are always these quote-unquote snubs, right? And this year's right. no different. Uh, so what artists uh, do you think could have been slam dunks in this year? Well, it's always tricky when we talk snubs because you come up against a certain amount of math, right? Like, if there are going to be eight nominees, there are more than eight new artists who merit consideration for, for an award like this. But two names that did really jump out at me as people I thought would be nominated in this category, one is the singer-songwriter Pink Pantheris. Pantheris has come up as kind of a viral pop star in, in large part through TikTok, had a big hit uh, duet with Ice Spice called Boys a Liar Part 2. I wouldn't be surprised to see Pink Pantheris make this field next year. There's still time for her to, to enter this field next year, in part because her debut album came out after the window of eligibility, but she certainly had hits that would have made her eligible for this category. The other name that I would bring up is Peso Pluma, uh, who really helped popularize Mexican regional music across the U.S. in 2023 with a massive hit called Ella Baila Sola, which is just a wonderful song. Let's actually hear a little bit of that. Bomba, 
¿Qué le parece esa morra? La que anda bailando sola Me gusta pa' mí It was really like an inescapable like TikTok smash. It crossed over to radio playlists, was enormously successful on streaming, and Peso Pluma only got one Grammy nomination, and it wasn't in any of the general categories. And I think a lot of people expected him to get more nominations as a major Latin crossover artist. All right, so historically, Best New Artist has been a pretty wonky category with, <laughs> with, a, with a mixed track record of predicting future success, right? I, I've heard mumblings of, of a curse, you know, being painted about. <laughs> Can you give us a, a brief history on, on, on this category? Well, I think the, the idea of a, of a Best New Artist curse has been pretty well vanquished in the last 20 or 30 years. <laughs> uh -huh. But there was in the 80s and early 90s kind of a trend toward where they would pick artists and then those artists wouldn't necessarily be able to sustain mm -hmm. long careers. Christopher Cross being a famous example. In 1990, this category gave the Grammys probably their biggest black eye ever when they gave Best New Artist to Millie Vanilli, uh, who was later determined to not actually perform its own songs. And I think it's it's led the Grammys to be a little bit safer and more conservative in terms of chasing artists who experience kind of a big uh, what seems like it might be a flash in the pan amount of success. But if you go back even farther, there are other embarrassments and issues. In 1986, Whitney Houston wasn't eligible for Best New Artist because she had recorded a couple of duets. And, mm. you know, when we talk about the fact like, oh, man, some of these people who are up for Best New Artist, they're not even new. That's in part trying to prevent a situation where an artist who's been bubbling under but hasn't really experienced any mainstream success winds up getting disqualified from this kind of award the way Whitney Houston was. All right, so so the big Grammys Corporation gives you a call, right? And they say, Stephen, we're going to give you a magic wand. You can do anything you want with just this category, Best New oh, Artist, man. to fix it and make it better. What, what are you, what's, what, what's your dictum? What are you doing? I think changing the name of this category to something like Breakthrough Artist mm, would make it mm -hmm. a lot easier to create a kind of set of guidelines that make sense to people. That you know, it's, it's obvious that an artist has had a breakthrough even when they're not a brand new artist. All right. Um, and finally, let's uh, let's put some money down on who's going to win. <laughs> I think this is Victoria Monet's year. Oh, interesting. Um, she was nominated for seven Grammys. She's one of the leading nominees. Perfect example of an artist who's been floating around the music industry for more than a decade, um, but had a huge breakthrough with this wonderful album she put out called Jaguar 2 and the song On My Mama. She feels like somebody the Grammys are really, really embracing this year, and I suspect she'll, she'll take this win. I put that on my mama. Put I look fly.